0: You know, your average dairy cow emits twice as much, two and a half times as much as much uh, CO two or the equivalent. It's methane, but it's the equivalent of, of greenhouse gas as a as a family car.
1: Welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Brian O'Boyle, the author of People Before Profit's Eco-Socialist Manifesto, was my guest on this episode of the show. As part of research for a future book, I've been doing a lot of thinking about how we might reimagine our world post-Covid. People Before Profit have obviously sat down and thoughtfully constructed a way to move Ireland towards becoming a post-carbon economy, and I was keen to find out more. We cover the transition and the changes that would be required in transport, in energy, agriculture, and in our homes. If you haven't already, and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Brian O'Boyle. So Brian, um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, yeah thanks for not a problem Uh, so yeah let's just dive straight in because I know you're you're a a busy man so what would you what how would you describe an eco-socialist like what do those words mean to you
0: yeah I mean obviously they're open to interpretation my where I would jump off on that is to say something like if you look at the natural science now it's pretty clear that most people almost everybody accepts that the, the current system that we live under is in some way implicated in, in climate change but there's a strange kind of double speak that goes on because on the one hand everybody knows that the economy is really centrally uh, at fault here and at the same time everyone's afraid to say that it's actually capitalism so what I wanted what we want to say is is that you know capitalism is the problem if you look at the um, at some of the figures that you know there's there's statistics out there that would say, the top 20 the biggest polluting 20 companies are responsible for in and around a third of all emissions that have been produced since the 1960s the top 100 global corporations 71% so i think there's a strong attitude around we need to do something about this but there's much less clarity about the the ultimate cause being capitalism so the idea of socialism obviously historically was a challenge to capitalism it was anti-capitalist and it was the idea that you put human need ahead of the logic of profit And so adding the eco in then just means that as well as, uh, you know, pushing the idea of human need, you're also saying that if you're going to pursue uh, economic systems on the base of human need, there also has to be an ecological element There has to be sustainability and stewardship. So that's what it means to me. I mean, obviously, it might mean other things to other people, but the idea of adding uh, an ecological consciousness to a a working class consciousness would be what I would see as
1: eco-socialism. Okay. So something that the the so the the party generally is called uh people before profit but i i kind of noticed that that you kind of there's a twist on that in the in the manifesto in that you sort of describe it as planet before profit mm-hmm. like did do you think there's a point at which we stopped having the planet come before profit was that was that ever something that we we've we really considered or you know uh, yeah, yeah. Where, where does that phrase come from for you well,
0: you know, as you say, it's a play on our name because we've been called people before profit. What I think is quite a successful name because it says, what we, you know, it's, it's very clear where we stand on the political spectrum. And also, it's about publicizing the idea that in the end, it's the logic of profit that's the problem. You know, it's the idea that a global corporation that can expand infinitely and will continuously push its own private agenda to increase its profitability Uh, regardless of the social consequences, regardless of the externalities. And so we wanted to get across the idea that it's the profit system that's the problem. And putting people before profit is obvious, and then putting the planet before profit. So in a way, yeah, you're right, it's just a play on the name. But it also, again, speaks to the same that we just spoke about there, Josh, which is the idea that um, there's a strong public consciousness around the need for climate action, but much less clarity around the anti-capitalist element of that action, I would say. And so, for example, I know that we might get onto it, but the idea that the Green Party in Ireland would be kind of, uh, you know, basic, not, I wouldn't say monopolising, but they certainly have been gaining the lion's share of the, of the ecologically conscious voters, let's say. And it's up to socialists to try and, um, you know, to win that vote by explaining that in the end, you will need more radical action than the the business as normal tinkering around the edges that we get from the likes of the the mainstream green parties.
1: One of the things you sort of talk about quite obviously is is moving away from profit as the ultimate motive as as like as the metric for how successful something is. Like, do do you have some kind of do you have uh, like what would you put in place of of sort of monetary value as as the metric by which we should measure, measure the success of something. Yeah.
0: Well, the first thing I would say there is, I mean, human need is very important. I'm an economist, and I teach economics to students. And what the the economics profession and the economics discipline has done is replace need with demand, the idea that you can demand things. And if you have effective demand, you effectively have, as you say, the money to demand what you want, and you can demand it in terms of your own private interests, uh, regardless of the social consequences. And so, for example, take, you know, an essential... Uh, you know, resource like food. I mean there's been it's for 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 decades there's been plenty of food in the world, but we still haven't managed to actually meet people's needs around food. There's plenty of food, there's more commodified food than we know what to do with, but the system is absolutely dreadful at actually distributing that food in such a way that it meets people's basic needs. So I think socialists start from the idea that humans have basic needs. They have physiological needs, they have social needs. Uh, They've all sorts of other psychological needs. And you start your economic uh, calculations from the point of view of what would need to be done to satisfy those basic needs. And then I think you also have to be humble. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the tradition, in, in for example, I'm a Marxist. If you look at the, the Marxist tradition, there's a whole literature on critiquing capitalism and a fairly, you know, a dearth of analysis of what might... Follow. And that's partly for a very good reason, which is to say, if you're a scientist, you need an object to investigate. So you need to know what you're investigating. And we haven't had socialism yet. So it will be very, you know, you have to be humble enough to know that the, the people who will create a new society will be themselves, the people who will be the architects of that society. But broadly speaking, I think it's obvious that what you would have to do is you would have to have a much deeper sense of democracy. You would have to democratize, uh, you know, your economy you would have to engage in a process of allowing people the capacities that they already have to be you know to be engaged around the political process around the economic process because as I'm not sure where you stand on this but I think the current economic model with its you know democracy that's kind of tacked on and you get a bit of democracy every few years but actually when you go to work you're told what to do and you work for somebody else obviously that has to go so there are there are obvious pointers that would say if you can democratize your society and your economy, then you can leave it up to people who themselves are doing that process to decide what they want to do uh, in, in a democratic way so i think that 's roughly what our vision would be
1: mm. i mean it 's interesting you sort of mentioned that that, that we haven 't had socialism, so you would you would very much like ring fence like what what occurred what well you know like historically just sort of maybe more murderous communist regimes from the the kind of vision that you want to build forward like you're very very sort of like would you be very keen to like obviously say look that's not where we're going
0: (laughs) i mean I, I, i would struggle to find anybody who would say you know i'm giving up my a lot of my time to try and build a murderous uh, police state <laughs> where, that, that imposes, you know, all sorts of privations on people so that I can have small groups of people in power. I mean, anyone who thinks that's the future, you know, is no. not someone who will, will be in my party. And I know I'm slightly being facetious, but the no, problem no, is, is that you're actually onto something because people often think when you say you're a socialist, they think you mean you secretly have pictures of the KGB on your <laughs> wall or whatever, you know? So yeah. it's, the truth of it is, is that... We see socialism as a doctrine that's based on the idea of human emancipation. It's about human liberation. And within that human liberation, it's about finding institutions, both economic and political, that allow people to make decisions around their own lives and control their own lives. I mean, one of the obvious points about our economy is we don't control it. You know, you don't control the economic decisions. So you say, for example, during the crisis, one in five children goes to school hungry Uh, major corporations are paying very little tax but when you try to put forward a a decent democratic demand to tax them a bit more Mm. so that people have the very, very basic needs you're told, oh you can't do that because (laughs) if you do that the corporations will leave now what does that say? It says corporations are blackmailers it says that if you try to put any sort of democratic wish on a private economy that's based on its own self-interest they will call your bluff and leave and take your job off you now, what kind of democracy is, is, do we live in when your job can be taken off you and your livelihood can be taken off you? So I'm sorry, I would like a bit more democracy in society and that starts with the economy.
1: Mm. No, I definitely agree with you. There's um, something I've been thinking a lot about is is sort of how we address the the sort of the actual democratic deficit and people's feeling of 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 not having any control over over their lives um but i want to move on to the to the eco-socialist manifesto now there's there's four sectors that that you kind of outline um as the the four that you want to address and i want to kind of like sort of touch on on all of them if we if we get time so there's uh agriculture transport energy and and the residential sector like why why do you choose why do you sort of why did you choose to cut them into those four sort of slices of the pie and, and why focus on, on those specific areas?
0: Yeah, well, I suppose that so one of the things that we were conscious of, w- w- in a way, w- the motivating factor for the document was the uh, re- relatively famous IPCC report that came out or a relatively well-known one that kind of dramatized the issue around emissions. And it said... Is this the 2018 October, one? Yeah, Yeah. in October 2018, that said effectively we have 11 years or 12 years to to basically reduce emissions by 50%. And if you read through the document, I mean, you would be quite pessimistic if you were on the current trajectory because, (laughs) you know, every year almost, except for a few years when there's an economic crisis, the level of emissions has increased rather than gone down. So there's been no sense that we're on the trajectory at all. It's not even that you're kind of on it, but you're too slow. You're actually going in the opposite direction. So what we said was, look, if you were serious about this, if you actually wanted to reduce the emissions by 50% over the next 10, 11 years, what would it take? And so we had two other kind of considerations which we wanted to build in. One was the idea that if you're going to do a, a manifesto, it has to seem that it's somewhat reasonable to people. In other words, I've articulated an anti-capitalist message, but let's be honest, we, none of us really think we'll be true with capitalism in the next 10, 11 years uh, unfortunately, so therefore, it has to be something that says it could be implemented in the here and now, albeit that it's quite radical and thirdly, it had to be it had to be based on socialism in the sense of a just transition. so, in other words, we're conscious that under a capitalist society, the elites are the primary uh exploiters of nature, but they're also the primary beneficiaries and so if you want a transition you have to make sure that the people who haven't done very well out of capitalism shouldn't be asked to shoulder the burden. They should actually be people who are helped through the transition and actually their lives could get better. So those were the kind of motivating factors. And when we looked at the literature, uh, we saw basically in report after report that there's about 80 to 85% of the emissions come from the four areas you spoke about there. So agriculture in Ireland is in around a third of emissions. Transport and energy generation, which is effectively generating electricity, were about 20 percent each and household residential is about 10 percent. So collectively, you're in the space of 80 to 85 percent. And we felt rather than sort of tinkering with the other areas and the document becoming, you know, much longer and all the rest of it, we felt we would it would nearly arrest people's, you know, um, in a way that would say, right. So all we could really do was do four key sets of me- of measures, and we could actually reach our targets. So that was the logic of why we picked those areas.
1: So um, the first, like you, you mentioned there, that that you're not keen for the people who have not been the beneficiaries of the the current system to to not shoulder the burden. And and one of the things, like specifically that I remember was that you had uh, a carbon tax. Or what, Sorry, you ruled out a carbon tax that would impact um, working people at the, you know, at the the petrol pump or the supermarket mm-hmm. till. Uh, like, why was that so crucial for you? Like, because you know, some people would make the argument that you know we've all been complicit in, in causing in causing climate change, and therefore we should all at least have some part to play in combating it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I mean, what I would say there's a there's a Couple of considerations there. First of all, when you say we've all been complicit, right? I would slightly challenge that because I would say if you think of take an area like transport, people want to get around. I mean, they're not particularly wedded to petrol. It's not like they have a fetish for petrol or for for what what the, the companies that have a petrol fetish for petrol are the, are the are the oil and gas companies. They <laughs> can't really do without oil and gas. We would be quite happy if we had a very effective mode of public transport, for example. So if you had really high speed trains for example or if you had, you know, or basically maybe a 4 day week so people had longer to actually travel, but the point is is that if there are ways around, what what humans want is a means to an end and the end is to be able to transport themselves efficiently to have warm and, and houses and so on. So our argument is is that actually before we ever make a choice around transport, the capitalist economy has made the choices to allow it has, has produced the options for us. So before you choose anything, the options have been presented to you. And so if there were other alternatives available to people, uh, like, as I said, uh, you know, a a free public transport system, for example, that was actually effective in in moving people around. Our our sense would be that people would move in a progressive direction, but you've got to give them the choices. So we dispute the narrative that uh, we're all to blame, actually. Uh, People want uh, basic comforts and basic efficiencies in their lives, which they shouldn't have to say sorry for. And actually, as I said already, you know, people have, you know, handed over massive amounts of their, of their disposable income to get those things. So, for example, I mean, we would say that if you put a carbon tax on the major polluters, that's a more efficient way of doing it, actually, because in the first place, they're the more direct uh, cause of the problem. Uh, you know, so, so you view tax. So we're not against the carbon tax per se. What we're saying is, uh, first of all, if you take the petrol tax, right? You and I know that the percentage of tax already on petrol is extremely high. I think it's in the region of 60 65%. Now, a few pence here and there, a few cent here and there isn't actually going to change people's behavior. So it's not going to be effective in actually changing behavior. It is regressive because it increases taxes on people in a a, a regressive way. In other words, if you're wealthier, it's, it's less of a proportion of your income than if you're poorer. And it also has the potential to lose people because if people see that you're asking ordinary people to carry the can for a system that has disproportionately benefited the rich, well, then they won't be particularly feeling like they should play a part. It's a little bit like COVID lockdown. In the end, you've got to bring people with you. And so for us, it's not we're not sort of fetishizing the idea that, you know, uh, nobody can pay anything. We obviously understand that we all have responsibility for the planet and we all have responsibility for our actions. No one is saying that, you know, people can absolve themselves of individual responsibility. But What we are saying, and what the movement says, is that while individual action is a good place to start, it's a terrible place to finish, you've actually got to put in systemic changes. And therefore, you've got to start. You see, this can muddy the waters. The idea is somehow that if you can put taxes on carbon, this will be a, a panacea. It won't be. So you could spend five, ten years convincing people of the wrong message, you could lose people, you could increase inequality, and yet you wouldn't have actually effectively tackled the climate emissions issue. So for all of those reasons, I think it's very important to say we've got to start. That's the wrong place to start. We can't start with the idea that the ordinary person has to pay for climate change. And that's, that really marks us out from the Green Party, because in the end, the Green Party are kind of on board for that idea, because in the end, they're a pro-capitalist party, and we are an anti-capitalist party. And that's the big difference, I think. Mm.
1: So you talk about uh, free public transport as one of the the potential options in in helping reduce the the carbon footprint of of the transport sector like why do you think that the free public transport is 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 such a I don't know. It's it's presented in your manifesto as, as one of the the like headline things in in helping to reduce um, reduce our carbon footprint from from transport. Yeah. And it was something that was proposed uh, ooh, two or three years ago by by Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party when he was still leader. Yeah. And it was kind of like just and he only proposed it for I think under twenty fives, and everyone was like, "Oh, you crazy, insane man! Like, yeah. why?" Why do you think that sh- that's the way that we should go in, in, in terms of trying to reduce our, our carbon footprint?
0: Well, isn't it interesting? I mean, I agree with that, that in a certain sense, you say make transport free and people think, oh, you could never do that. You know, that's an impossible dream. And like, actually, when we costed it, we sent in questions to the Department of Finance to find out, you know, how much money had been raised across the transport network in, I think it was 2017, was the figures they had, and so they would have collected, you know, from, from say, Bus airin and Dublin Bus and Inroad airin and all the various uh, national transport agencies, they would have collected the information. And the figure was, from memory, something like $595 million. Now, on, on one hand, that sounds like an awful lot of money. You know, it sounds like it would be quite an expensive uh, undertaking. But when we looked at the amount that the government would spend in any calendar year, it works out actually in a nice sort of way. It's just under <laughs> one percent. So the government okay. spends 60 billion, and this is 600 million. So we think first of all, it's about raising expectations. It's about saying that it's possible to do things that uh, you know that mainstream politicians have convinced you that are not possible. So we've got to challenge the idea that we can't do things in the here and now. Secondly, it meets the criteria of just transition, because we know that it is uh, you know uh, poorer uh, commuters who tend to be disproportionately on public transport. And we know, therefore, that if you take public transport, you're engaging in what economists call a public good because you are reducing emissions for everyone. And so if you, you know, if you want to continue driving a gas-guzzling, uh, you know, 4x4 Jeep or whatever, there should be a penalty there. But if you're willing to take public transport, there should be an incentive to say, listen, you're actually supporting a wider agenda here, not just your own need to transport, but you're actually supporting the environment, and it would reduce, uh, you know, not only emissions but also congestion And it would reduce. uh, It would it would increase and improve air quality. So there's lots of very, uh, you know, economists talk about what I call externalities. In other words, they're not factored into the direct cost. But as a policymaker, you would want to factor them in because they actually have positive social benefits that are not captured by markets. So public transport has a lot of those going on, uh, Josh. And it's about those. So it's about capturing those public uh, benefits and at the same time signalling to people that it's possible to transition away from the private car in a way that's actually making your life easier rather than harder.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I was really interestingly, I was reading um, a book recently called uh, The Finance Curse by by Nicholas Jackson. Um, yeah, I've read my book. Yeah, yeah, i Yeah, of- I didn't. I'd actually did a podcast with him yesterday. I'm not sure if it'll be out before or after this one. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know. I know. So, so one of the things that I was, uh, that came across and I was really, I mean, Shocked isn't the word, but it was that in in America, actually during the in the 1910s and 20s, uh, basically a whole bunch of like car and oil um, companies came together and bought up um, street cars and electric rail systems in like 45 cities in order to just trash them so that they could yeah. then like push the car as the only way to get around. Um, so, okay. yeah, it, it kind of speaks to your point that, you know, perhaps we're not as all to blame as as. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. as we th- Those are good. Points. Yeah, as we think we are. Um, so th- speaking of things that that have um, benefit that isn't considered by markets, um, one of the, one of the things you sort of propose uh, to deal with the problem of emissions in in agriculture is both uh, rewilding um, the mm-hmm. the kind of need to nationalise agri uh, like big um, agriculture corp corporations and also to try and, and, and like bring our level of forestry up to to the european average uh, i think is at 35 or 33 percent um yeah. and so so why do you think like that in, in particular and and the rewilding is is important like surely surely ireland's not that that huge uh, a carbon sink like really we should we be not focusing on perhaps and not cutting down the amazon or you know making sure we leave other forests alone Mm -hmm. rather than trying to replant some in in ireland like yeah yeah
0: Yeah, i mean obviously they're not um they're not in 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 competition you know you can (laughs) you can you can advocate that Bolsonaro doesn't cut down the Amazon, but unfortunately, the Amazon's not in Ireland. It's in you know, so we don't have direct policy control over what happens in the in the Amazon. So, I mean, of course, if we were writing, if I was writing a book on the subject, I would obviously include the Amazon because, uh, you know, we all know that somewhere between twenty and thirty percent of all uh, carbon is sequestered in in the Amazon, and it's very very frightening actually that the. Um, the Bolsonaro government, amongst its many crimes, is you know uh, pandering to the the, the big loggers and the big uh, ranchers in order to shore up their own right wing government, but at the at the cost of massive damage to indigenous people and massive damage to the wider human population. So of course that's key. But in a certain sense, what we had to do was look at what's going on in Ireland, and what struck us was again. This was partly motivated, Josh, by a conversation that myself and Richard Boyd Barrett had with the beef plan movement. I'm not sure if you're aware of the beef plan movement. No. Beef plan, beef plan movement emerged about two years ago as a kind of a, a quasi um, monop- or, uh, trade union for uh, small and medium-sized beef farmers. And their argument was, when they spoke to us, is that effectively the way capitalism has integrated agriculture is interesting because, you see, agriculture is based on a natural rhythm. So it hasn't been as easy to sort of, you know, if you go back to 200 years ago, it was quite easy to to displace cottage industries with, you know, centralized manufacturing because it was just so much more productive. You can make shorts in a very, very quick way. You can't really make cattle or grains (laughs) in that same way because they're based in the end on a natural cycle. And so capitalism tended to integrate itself in the input stage, in other words, selling the feed to the farmers selling the you know, the uh, nutrition, the nutrients for the soils, the uh, combine harvesters, the machinery, and then le- allowing the heavy labor-intensive element to still be done by the farmers and coming in behind the farmers then and taking the, the product and processing it. And so what has happened is farmers have been squeezed by corporate capital at the input stage and at the processing stage. And so what they tell you is, is that they're on a kind of a, a production treadmill they're in, they, they've got to produce more and more and more because the price is going down all the time because the supply is too high. But they are caught in that because none of them can actually solve that problem individually. And so as a collective, their argument is that we can start to put a bit of a pressure back on the likes of the ABP meats or, you know, key pack or, or their input suppliers and say, look, we want a bigger share of what's going on here. And what struck us was that they actually have very different motivations than the corporate sector. The corporate sector, by and large, wants to increase profits infinitely. And so they're happy to continuously increase the size of the dairy and beef herds uh, because they're looking for markets all over the world. The recent one you probably know is that they've carved out a major niche for baby powder in China. And they're they're shipping, you know, they're shipping baby powder across to the Chinese markets. So you can imagine the environmental impact of that. So we don't have much faith that the likes of, uh, you know, the big corporate sector in Ireland is going to get on board for a climate agenda because it's inimical to its interests. But we do think your average small and medium farmer actually is worried about the environment, but they want a sustainable future both for their own families, for their rural heritage, and for their um, and for the wider society. I think, in other words, we see them as part of the solution. So what we try to do in the document is to say, look there are ways that we can actually incentivize farmers in a way that gives them more control over their lives. So in other words, we wouldn't be people as socialists who would come in and demand farmers do things or sort of demonize farmers. It's it's politically not what we believe in. And it's actually very ham fisted. It doesn't actually achieve very much. What we think is you've got to appeal to farmers better sense. And actually we think farmers have that sense. There's lots of farmers who are looking for, for an alternative. So broadly speaking, what we said was look, you know, your average dairy cow emits twice as much, two and a half times as much as much uh, CO2 or the equivalent, it's methane, but it's the equivalent of, of greenhouse gas as a, as a family car. So there's also, you know, so if you can get a few of those cows off the land, it will be no harm. <clears throat> so our, argue, our idea was, if you went to the farmers and fi- found out why don't they take up the current schemes, you get told that they don't take up the scheme because uh, they're worried that the money will dry up. If you move towards any rewilding, you can't move back towards, uh, you know, agriculture. There's all sorts of rules there. And the money basically is, <clears throat> is designed to get them to be supplying uh, commercial trees to Croatia, basically. And what we think is if you gave farmers more control over where they plant, how they plant, what control they have, which parts of land that they pick, and you give them €3,000 per hectare to do this, it will be higher than they can make on the market in terms of their own current uh, spend. And it would leave them enough land that if they wanted to continue to farm part of their land because of their heritage, it would still be available. And if you took that money from the agricultural corporations, you're also starting to reduce the monopoly power that they have over these farmers' lives. So for us, again, it fits the the, the twin objectives of a a, a just transition. Well, the the three objectives, just transition, practical and effective.
1: So you talked about um, trying to like, move away from the, the, the sort of big uh, agri-corps and towards sort of small and medium uh, farming enterprises. Like, why, why are small and medium farms better like well, why? Why are they? Yeah, just why are they better equipped mm-hmm. to diversify the products they're they're uh, they're producing, and and why are they sort of less impactful on the environment? You know, like surely, sh- like I just just because you know, in, in I'd say, well, in my head at least to some extent, and to most people, it might seem like, well, what's the difference? You know, you're just farming mm-hmm. more land, like they're...
0: Well, as I said, I mean, I would say uh, that farmers, by and large. There is a spectrum, obviously. I mean, there's over 100,000 farms in Ireland, so you can't you to be careful about generalizing too much. And there will be very high capital-intensive dairy farms that wouldn't be a million miles away from the logic of an ABP meats in terms of what we want to do is invest, increase production, make a profit, reinvest, produce more, make a profit, reinvest. There's a, there's a cycle of accumulation, as Marx would call it, and that applies, obviously, to plenty of the farmers in the country, no doubt about that. But actually, a lot of the farmers, and if you said it yourself, if you're if you're a small farm, well then you've probably had the farm in your in or medium sized farm, you probably had the farm or the land in your family for generations. And actually, the 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 accumulation mode hasn't been there because you haven't actually ex- expanded enough to be a large farm. So in lots of ways, lots of farmers see themselves as stewards of the land. I would say, and actually, funny enough, um, I'm reading about um. the the common agricultural policy at the moment, and they're talking about this new multifunctionality, which they say, in other words, the the, the European Union is grappling with the the how to handle two different interests. On the one hand, the big corporations want fully uh, free markets. They want to let rip. They want access to all the markets of the world. And you see, if you did that, under the reciprocity rules of the World Trade Organization, you would risk you know, cheaper foods coming into Europe and undermining the small and medium farmers. But the small and medium farmers are arguing that farming is multifunctional. This is the language they're using. And multifunctional is about the idea that farming isn't just about producing uh, food, which is obviously important for food security, but it's also about producing a legacy, a heritage, uh, environmental sustainability. And so we've got to emphasize that, I think, and say farmers are not the problem. Uh, The capitalist logic of accumulation in agriculture is a big problem, but farming itself is essential. Of course, we need uh, access to food and we need uh, we need who else is going to steward the land better than the people who've lived on the land for all these years. So I don't think you can equate the two. And I think it's very important politically and even sort of uh, theoretically to distinguish between the major corporations who are wedded to profit and, a, and, and an accumulation model, which is very damaging to the environment, and farmers who are often caught between a stewardship model and surviving and, and actually sustaining themselves on the land.
1: It's interesting that you used the phrase um, "stewards of of the land," like, because that's kind of the idea that I've I've been coming across that that we need to just as a society sort of more generally see ourselves as like the stewards or or custodians of of the earth. Like do do you think that the Ireland maybe has almost a little more of that in their culture just because of of how like how important farming has been to us historically? I think so. Yeah, I think
0: I think um again like I've spoken to small and medium farmers in in, in the west of Ireland because I was telling you I work for NUI Galway and I've been actually based in Sligo for a long time. And I know probably more farmers than I would know, given that I'm from Tala in Dublin <laughs> because of my experience. And we've met the beef Plan movement, as I said, as well. And they're very sympathetic to what we're trying to do, you know. And we want to make sure that socialism... You see, one of the arguments that's made against us often is that there's this big rural-urban divide that, you know, we in Dublin, are people before profit, are just out for, you know, uh, what's it that they say, you can't go past the M50. In other words any kind of move away from outside of dublin or a couple of urban centers and where you know we get runny noses because we don't know what's going on and in a certain sense there's an element of truth in that in the sense that we are not people who uh, profess to know what rural life is like because we don't experience it that much but on the other hand we do know that human beings want a few basic things they want control of their lives as i said and i think you know, farmers, I think, feel very much under threat. You look at the Mercursor deal, you look at the shifts in people's uh, consumption of meat, for example. You look at the climate movement that often demonizes the uh, farmers. And, it can feel, and you look at Brexit, for example, it can feel like a very, very lonely place to be a farmer. And actually, Josh, I was struck, struck when I was looking at some of this research. If you go onto the Beef Plan Movement's website... The first two or three things that are political objectives, and then what they have is a whole series of phone numbers for the likes of the Samaritans for um you know pieta House. I mean, there's a serious sense in which these you know a lot of people feel a lot of um desperation and probably feel that there's not many ways out for them and as I said, it's very important I think politically for the left to get across the idea that we're not against uh, farmers, we're not against rural people. We actually see though as a, a vitally important component of any progressive society. But we need to break the logic of the accumulation that squeezes them and, and actually increases the emissions. And so in, and we've spent a long time talking about this because it's an important point. And I think you've picked up on the idea that your listeners probably haven't heard that argument as much as maybe some of the other stuff that we'll have talked about. So I appreciate that because I think politically we've got to win rural people to the idea that they have a positive future and that future can be won if we can take on the big vested interests in agriculture.
1: Um, Now, it's interesting, like you're talking about that sort of cycle of accumulation and it's something that I was actually listening to a podcast where they were talking about that it was a uh, it's um like a, a quite an old podcast from 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 joe rogan with uh brett weinstein and jordan peterson on it and they're they're sort of talking about this law of nature and i was just trying to google it i cannot think of the name of the scale but basically it's that 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 in every single creative endeavor um that this cycle of accumulation happens that 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 you end up with the majority of the spoils or the you know the the money or the lessons or the you know youtube streams or 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 you know c d sales that they all that they accumulate in the hands of a very small minority of people that's just the way that almost the universe works so how do you like sell the idea to people that we want to move beyond or at least like find ways of 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 aggressively tempering that tendency in, in humanity. Like, like, for, for you at People Before Profit, because I love the ideas, right? And I think it's, it's really great that you're, you're identifying um, areas in which you know for example with farming what you've said okay farmers have been traditionally demonized by the environmental movement um, but we think they're a really key part of of the rebuilding process so we want to like engage them we want to see that we're on want, want to show them that we're on their side so how, how do you but how do you like try and like switch people's thinking to say that okay we're we're going to accept that that's like a just a rule of nature almost and then we're going to say okay here's how we combat this like how do you get that as a as a conversation that people are are willing to have and and entertain
0: well that's a big question <laughs> i mean the there's two things i i would distinguish there right so first of all we live in a class society right and we have done uh, you know civilization emerged with class actually because it was essential in originally that a small minority of any population could get disproportionate control of enough resources that they could free themselves from having to labor. So, uh, you know, our civilization for all of its uh, beauty and all of its, uh, you know, disasters are actually, they both come from the same, uh, you know, root source, which was uh, the, the emergence of class, and so we've always lived in class societies. In fact, humans have always lived. Any any society that was beyond just sort of basic subsistence has been a class-based society. Now, they are sets of social relationships, historically specific social relationships. They're not natural in the sense that they are built into our human nature, I would argue. Now, you could make an argument to say, well, why did human beings at that stage it upon themselves to create class societies. That's an argument, and that's, that's a fair argument, that's a fair question. But you could also, po- and I'll answer it in a second, but you could also pose the question backwards and say, well, why hadn't they created class societies for the first 250,000 years of existence? In other words, if it was in our human nature, we'd have had to have done it fairly early, I would have thought, for it to be part of our nature. I think what it is is that humans are in a dialectic with nature itself, and there was a point at which we were able to create surpluses. And there was a point at which self-preservation meant that parts of that group or whatever, over many generations, by the way, I wouldn't think it would have happened over five minutes, Mm -hmm. uh, would have gotten control of of the surplus. And we've lived with the implications of class, whether it was through slavery, feudalism, or capitalism. They're all, in different ways, class-based societies where a ruling elite controls the economic the political the ideological resources and the vast majority of the people work for them i mean it's very natural if someone says what do you want to do you know i want to work for i work for what does your mom do or your dad do they work for well if they're working for somebody else i mean it's the essence of class right now jordan pearson has a very strong agenda which is to, to naturalize this mm. to you know to uh you know to make it seem like it's impossible to ever get out of class because class he i'm not sure i'm not sure that's he,
1: exactly where he's going with it but but like i, I take okay, your point yeah, yeah
0: yeah i don't i don't follow him that closely but my 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 I, I okay my sort of peripheral understanding of where he goes with things is he brings a pop psychology in to sort of you know to play on people's um uh sort of no, I don't. I don't want to say they're they're ignorance, but the they play on people's sort of maybe say let's say common sense, okay. Like okay. sort of a sense that yeah, because obviously we've lived. If you live in a society where people are generally uh, you know forced to compete, forced to compete for a relatively scarce resource, while other people control most of the most of the resources, it can feel very much dog eat dog. It can feel like if you try to do anything outside of you know fight, fighting for your own corner. You lose, mm. you know, you, you know, like swimming across the channel and trying to drag five people with you. Like it's a hard <laughs> enough job in capitalism as it mm-hmm. is. So therefore it plays on that sense of we all have to do our thing. We're all naturally competitive. But actually it's the social system that creates the the, the scarcity. We don't have natural scarcity anymore. We have socially generated scarcity. It's the social system that creates competition. The competition is in, is essential for us because we have to turn up for work and if you don't have scarcity and competition, there's other ways to, to, to provide for yourself. Well, then people wouldn't work. Karl Marx makes a great um, a parody of this capitalist in the 1800s who has a bright idea of taking his 50,000 pounds and taking 300 uh, effectively poor people with him to Australia under the premise that they're going to work for him. As soon as they get to Australia, he finds they all leave him. And he's left with <laughs> nothing, no, 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 no capital except the pieces of paper in his pockets. In other words, it's the social system that creates behaviours. And then what happens is pop psychologists turn those behaviours into natural attributes of human beings that have always existed. And I think um, that's not to diminish the challenge we face because people's behaviours are their behaviours under capitalism and we we haven't got an Archimedean position to stand outside of capitalism. But in the socialist movement, the first thing to do is to say, it's not inevitable that people behave this way. It's socially generated behavior, which gives you at least a glimmer of hope. And secondly, we think struggle. In other words, people resist. So if people were just uh, you know, living under these natural laws that, uh, that, that Peterson and so on uh, want to say we do, you wouldn't be able to explain the rise of the women's movement. You wouldn't be able to explain the rise of the environmental movement. You wouldn't be able to explain Black Lives Matter. If it was just about you engaging in dog-eat-dog competition for your own life, you wouldn't do any of these things because they're actually, you know, they 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 put individual costs on people in order for those to change the overall social fabric. Now, again, he wants to denigrate those people and say that they're irrational or they, go, they should go and clean their bedroom or whatever <laughs> he says they should do. But, like, you know, this is just right-wing pop psychology, and I think it's very... And he's actually... I, I think, in a way, you know, he has far more social gravitas than he deserves because it, actually the ideas are kind of fairly facile ideas, I would say. But that doesn't get away from the problem. And the problem is how do we convince people that we can fight for a society that doesn't uh, contain class as its central dynamic? Mm-hmm. And that's been the socialist movement's question for a couple of hundred years. And I suppose the answer is um, struggle. You look at the Fridays for Futures movement, the young people now, tens of thousands on the streets. Yeah. I personally think that capitalism is, you know, we've got a triple crisis. We've got the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We've got the global economic Mm -hmm. crisis and we've got the climate crisis. And I I think anyone who who has any sense of, you know, the historical gravity of those challenges can see that capitalism is not capable of solving them. I mean, if you weren't even, if you were a rampant free market here, you know, you would still have to pause for a minute and say, can we have unlimited growth uh, corporations that grow, in, you know, forever in a, in a in a finite system. Can that is that possible? Is that something that we want to legislate for? And I think people can see. I mean, I read the other day in an Irish Times article from someone very mainstream who said basically this argument that capitalism is not capable of solving these problems. It's actually the problem, not the solution. So I think we, we've got to do. We've got to. We've got to be. The canary in the mind we've got to be the people who are championing good sense now it might not be common sense for everybody yet but it's important somebody is calling out the problems and saying capitalism is the problem here and we need uh you know we need a movement to actually take it take it on and so our job is to sort of popularize that to agitate for that and to build movements that can actually deliver that that's that's what we try to do
1: I mean just uh, there's a lot to address there. Um so just just to go, to go back I think um I mean one of the things that I actually took from from the conversation that I was listening to with with Peterson and and Brett Weinstein was yeah. that um or Weinstein, that they they essentially say that okay, there's there's certain like n- things that that have become human traits. Whether you want to believe that that's through um, society and and the traits that that's bestowed upon us, or whether you want to believe that that's a truly like natural thing that that evolves, that mm-hmm. there are certain things that are traits and and sort of patterns that have evolved in society. Whether like I said through the structures or or you just are yeah. um, yeah. genetic sort of heritage but but Mm -hmm. their 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 main point actually is that 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 humans as as brilliant rational like like intelligent creatures have have all of the tools with which to overcome and imagine something better than than what is um sort of based in either you can call it like our our societal structures or or biological sort of programming like however you want to view that like their their main point is that we have the the we also have the tools with which to overcome those those structures and and create like a a better society because we're we're smart enough to to recognize those structures those patterns those problems and then you know hopefully overcome it (laughs) that's that's Mm -hmm. that's what i take from it anyway um but the The idea that that you're saying that it's becoming a really mainstream thing to say capitalism is not capable of solving this. And something that Nicholas Shackson actually mentioned to me yesterday, and he was saying that he believes that there's there's like a critical mass of 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 not only ideas and literature, but now like more and more and more people who who five years ago them saying like uh, capitalism is fundamentally flawed would have just been insane, and now you've got people like in really high up mainstream positions who would have never thought to consider you know criticizing the free market or or the system that we've built the, of, of neoliberalism in in the west are now coming out and saying yeah we need massive wealth distribute redistribution or we need like a huge program to tackle like the excesses of of of, of you know corporate driven capitalism do you think that we're approaching that sort of like tipping point of ideas where where there's enough people who believe that the current system is so flawed that we really need some sort of like big monumental moment of of sitting down and going okay we need like a big rethink here
0: the honest answer is I don't know is the the short answer I mean I I think it's interesting maybe if you look at the climate movement I think a lot of younger people are certainly using the language of anti-capitalism I mean they would say things like system change not climate change I think there's a growing unease, I think, in the leadership of the global neoliberal West, for example, that their system is under pressure. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, if you go back to World War II and you look at the the restructuring of capitalism that they were successful in building, there was a sense, you know, the American dream, there was an optimism about the West that is gone. I mean, um, that's for sure. And, you know, there's the... You know, the extreme center now, whereby they present themselves as somehow the defenders of a civilization. But actually, I mean, they're allowing thousands of people to drown in the Mediterranean. They have undermined vast amounts of the pensioners across Europe's uh, futures. They have undermined uh, social welfare systems and broken up um, all sorts of social protections for people. And this is meant to be the mainstream center. And I think it's obvious, and, the, and, and, and you know, the, the, the point is, is that there is growing space for radical challenge to the system. You only have to look at the fact that when George Floyd was murdered, I think there was a sense in which, you know, lots of black people are murdered in America. I mean, it's, it's not actually, unfortunately, very unusual for it mm. to happen. And it was the public element of it There was a the sort of sense of the barbarity and the brutality of what went on, and we all know that that was a part of it. But I think also part of it was... Trump has thrown black people to the wolves here. More black people are dying than anyone else in terms pro rata from COVID because they're poorer, because they live in overcrowded environments, because they work in areas where they can't get out of, uh, you know, meeting people and so on. And actually there was I think it was at 806 cities or something in America had protests around George Floyd. Now that says to me that this isn't just about George Floyd as much as, you know, as, as important that as that was. I think that was saying there are systemic problems here and we're not going to take them. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, it's also true that the the despair and the and, and the misery that's been caused by late capitalism is also capitalized by the right. And the, the far right have grown considerably. Uh, you know, capitalism is structured around national states and therefore nationalism has always been an important part of, of capitalist ideologies. And so the far right are peddling all their usual nonsense about, conspiracies, and it's, you know, the build bear group, and anything really to try and get a, a foothold and pull people to the right. And that, that has been somewhat successful. So I would say we're heading into a period of revolt. I do think that. I think... You know, you can't live under a system like this where there's so much inequality, there's so much oppression, there's so much environmental deg- degradation. I mean, there's outbreaks all over the world now. and They're not anti-capitalist per se, but there's outbreaks right across the Middle East. There's been, you know, major movements in India. Uh, there's, there is resistance increasing all over the system. And at the same time, as the system weakens in its center, it presents opportunities to progressive forces, but also to the to the to the regress of the reactionary forces. So I mean, the reason I suppose it's up to it's all I think politics has become more acute and more uh you know, there's there's more to play for. The stakes are increasing for sure, I think, over the last few years. I mean, you remember there was a famous book in the early two thousand I think it might have been nineteen ninety nine by um Francis Fukuyama, The End of History, where he predicted that the Liberals had mm. won history was over, there would be no more conflict. I mean, (laughs) you know, anyone who's lived through the last 20 years realizes how much hubris there was involved in that consideration. And so we know that they've hollowed out the center, um, but there is dangers as well. And so I would say the left has a job of work to do, let's say. But it's, uh, I'm, you know, Gramsci always had a phrase which struck me, which was pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will and I think you've got to remain optimistic but at the same time not presume that it's
1: going to be plain sailing. Do you think that the west um sort of became victims of their own success with that so that that end of history statement kind of just sums up the it- The you know post World War Two there was that sort of twenty five year period of of like extreme growth and rebuilding and development and do you think we all just sort of sat back and went okay well you know no need to no need to struggle or worry anymore that's it we've won you know history's over do do you think that was like a sort of a more overarching feeling than just Fukuyama?
0: I would say so. I mean, I think you know the book probably got its popularity because it 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 hit on something that was wider than what he was saying he was the you know the representative of the of an idea that was more general in society than what he was saying but but it, you're right the fact that you know it's also, you see, it's an intervention. It's both a description and a prescription. That's what those books are doing. It's both describing and prescribing something. So it's saying the West has been successful, and it's also saying it's great that the West has been successful because we're at the end of history. Well, actually, if you lived in large parts of Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe, I'm not so sure you'd, have, you'd accept the prescription, first of all. Maybe this, maybe the description that the west had been somewhat successful but you know there was there was all tied up in that the the project for a new american fu- century if you remember where the neocons were effectively trying to project their military power because they knew they had a window before china really rose mm-hmm. where they could try and dominate the world and so it was both a kind of a in a way it was actually i think uh Trying to convince the world that the, that history was over, as much as it was describing that, that that history was over, because I I think the most serious analysts in uh, in capitalist societies understand that as long as there is a really cutthroat national state based competition between blocks of capital, you're going to, you're never going to have the end of history because you're going to have you know competition and and military power and all the rest of it are very central institutions in the dna of capitalism so how are you going to have a conflict-free you know ideologically uh, unchallenged future when you have yeah in other words you hadn't moved out of capitalism all you had done was had a, a, a brief phase where the western capitalist system seemed to have been
1: uh, in the supremacy but that didn't last very long mm-hmm. okay so um final question then because i'm aware you got to mm-hmm. run um so how optimistic are you for the so the future of, of both ireland and and humanity like are, are we capable of of trying to deal with with climate change is it is well I mean I guess you got to think that we're at least possibly capable or else you wouldn't have wrote the the manifesto, um and then uh, if there's anything you wanna to, wanna to plug and whatnot just before yeah. you go,
0: well look I mean as I said already the optimism of the will is certainly there I was listening to a, I was coming back from work one day and a woman was on one of the uh, drive time shows, and she had written an article in the I think it was the originally in the guardian and then it was in the telegraph and she was lambasted and all the rest of it by mm. people but effectively what she was saying was i think she was 35 at this stage and she decided not to have children because she was too worried about the climate mm-hmm. crisis well i have a two-year-old so obviously i feel like uh we have a future on the planet and i feel like we have a responsibility to fight for my daughter for example and for anyone else who has younger children and so look i look around and i see you know a trade union movement that hasn't got into gear yet for example that has millions of of members across the world i look and see young people who have far more vision and uh, you know optimism and faith in the world than maybe a lot of us have as they haven't been around the block so often <laughs> and i think you know my view is that we have to put our faith in the workers movement the women's movement the progressive movements in society and push towards trying to make those ideas. You know, I think, as I say to people, socialism is good sense, but it has to become common sense. And so, you know, my view is that we all have a responsibility if we want a future that is based on human need, that is based on moving away from the likes of, you know, the racism and the homophobia and the the, the jingoism and the and the disasters that come with uh, right wing politics in general and capitalism in particular well, then I think we've got to do something about that. And so it's not a matter of being, you know, sort of prescriptive about the end goal. In other words, am I optimistic we're going to win? I don't know. But I do know that I have a responsibility to do something now to try and make sure we do win. And that means getting involved in in progressive politics. And hopefully people, if they like what we said today, they might look at what people before profits doing if they're on the island, and we'd love to have them involved with us. Um, and you said plug, so I'll give myself a shameless plug. I've just finished the book um, with uh, Kieran Allen, who's a... A lecture in UCD on Ireland as a tax haven. It'll be coming out with Pluto Press, which is a very good independent left-wing publisher in London, who have backed us up, and the, we've got a few books with them. And it will be out, I think, probably next year. But it's the first book of its kind that looks at Ireland in a systematic way as a tax haven, as one of the world's biggest tax havens. And um, you know, maybe when the book is out, i will come back on and explain a bit more about. Yeah, that. that'd be
1: cool. Um, if you send me a link, if there's a like a pre-order link or whatever, I'll put it in the in the show notes for people to check it out. Um, yeah, um, I know you have to have to shoot but um, yeah this was a, an absolute pleasure man this is uh, really interesting thanks, um, I hope you enjoyed it Thank
0: <laughs> I really enjoyed it yeah thanks very much take care
1: thanks so much for listening if you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list and don't forget my book Brexit the Establishment Civil War is now available for pre-order on Amazon You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.